My name is Ben Greenfield, and on this episode of the Ben Greenfield Life Podcast. God's word is God's revelation to humanity. It represents his own voice. He is speaking. He tells us about himself. He tells us about our, uh, ourselves. He tells us about the world. He tells us what's broken. From the perspective of, of what God says in his word, drug and alcohol addiction is just, it, it's an expression of, of idolatry. And we are made in God's image. We're made to know God and to enjoy God forever. But the problem is, is that we're rebels against God. We want to go our own way. We want to fashion our own little idols and, and not have God. And so we do that. Like uh, there's a famous theologian in history that said that the human heart is a natural idol making factory and it is never idle in making idols. And so uh, ultimately, drug and alcohol addiction is the pursuit of an idol. And the answer is we're broken. We're rebels against God. We don't want God. So we chase the substandard God. And the problem is, is that false gods will never satisfy real spiritual needs. Faith, family, fitness, health, performance, nutrition, longevity, ancestral living, biohacking, and a whole lot more. Welcome to the show. If you're in your 30s or anywhere beyond, you got to start eliminating senescent cells in your body. These are the so-called zombie cells that make you feel old before it's time to feel old. They linger in your body after their useful function, hence their name zombie cells, wasting energy and precious nutrition and leading to so many middle-aged symptoms like low energy, brain fog, slow workout recovery, and joint discomfort. But luckily, you can nuke these senescent cells. There are a bunch of different Newly discovered plant-derived ingredients that when expertly combined can help to reduce senescent cells and the folks at Neurohacker have cracked the code on putting them all together into a fantastic product called Qualia Senolytic. Qualia Senolytic. Now, this could be one of the biggest aging breakthroughs of the decade based on what we know about senescent cells. It could take years off how old you feel in just months. And you only use it twice a month, six capsules twice a month. Super simple. I'm actually on my cycle right now. I just took six this morning. I'll take six tomorrow morning. Then I set it and forget it for a month, nuking my senescent cells and feeling younger in the process. So if you're sick of feeling old before your time, try, try Qualia Senolytic. Go to neurohacker.com slash Ben Seno, S-E-N-O, neurohacker.com slash Ben Seno, Backed by a 100-day money-back guarantee and that code Ben Senna will give you an additional 15% off at neurohacker.com forward slash Ben Senna. Hey, folks. My guest on today's show is a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. I am not kidding. He played Michelangelo and Donatello for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles franchise. He was also Johnny Cage in Mortal Kombat, arguably uh, during his time in martial arts, one of the most dangerous guys alive, world champion martial artist with five black belts. You may have also seen him as a fighter in MTV's The Final Foo. He's also been married for over 20 years. He's got five kids, and he has been featured on a series for the History Channel called The Stoned Ages, which reviews the Christian approach and philosophy concerning drug and alcohol addiction. He was also in the documentary film A Storm Comes Rolling Down the Plain. And you may have uh, heard me say Christian there. Yes, he's also the pastor and the elder of Apologia Church in Tempe, Arizona. 
uh, since it was founded in February of 2010. So he's been a pastor at the time of this recording for over 13 years. He's worked for many years as a hospital chaplain. He's a popular speaker for camps and conferences and churches and schools around the world. This dude's up to a lot. Kind of makes me feel like an underachiever. Anyways, though, you can find out more about Jeff and access all the show notes for today's episode at bengreenfieldlife.com slash Jeff Durbin. bengreenfieldlife.com slash Jeff Durbin. His last name is D-U-R-B-I-N. Admittedly, a wide-ranging and often controversial fella, but we had a great discussion about drugs, alcohol, and uh, much more. So enjoy this episode with Jeff Durbin. So uh, Jeff, you keep pretty, pretty, uh, pretty busy, man. Super busy. Are you are you actually exercising as we speak? I'm walking on Walk. a treadmill on a very, very, <laughs> very soft treadmill. I don't know if I call this exercising. I suppose some people might call it exercising. Okay. I, uh, I always engage in a, in a little bit of light movement when I'm talking to people because you know what? I actually find it keeps my uh, kind of keeps my brain turned on, you know, the whole concept of like the walking university, you know, back, back in, in the days of, uh, of Plato and Socrates and the idea of like more brain derived neurotrophic factor getting generated when you're moving. Well, that's I, what I, I, that. I, what I usually do is I make everybody sick when I'm on a video calls. Cause I just wander around the room in circles and people almost vomit. Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny. I used to do that too. Obviously it's not conducive to podcasting, but I used to wander all over my office and I still like, I, I have carved paths out in my yard from phone consults and phone conversations where I just walk loops around the yard. I wish more people would, would kind of, you know, get out of their chair to when when they got to talk on the phone. Just because, I mean, why not, right? It, it, yeah, you, you don't have to be tied to a chair. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I, I sat yeah. here. And, and, I, I I sat here so I would look nice for your interview, but apparently I should just start wandering like you. <laughs> well, you're on the road too, right? You're traveling. Yeah, yeah. We're in Florida right now, which I think uh, it's looking pretty bad outside right now. Uh, I was told a hurricane may may hit, so I'm not sure what the next 24 hours will bring. All right. Well, hopefully, hopefully it stays tame, at least for the for the purposes of this interview. And, you know, there's so much that I want to talk with you about, Jeff. But right before we started recording, you asked me because I'm wearing a blood glucose monitor on my left arm right now on this ketone monitor on my right arm. You asked me if there were NAD patches. And I said, no, but I I have one on my butt. And and you told me you're actually a fan of, of NAD yourself. Yes. Yes. Big time. Uh, I get my NAD from uh, Ion Layer. Great, great company. Great guys. Uh uh, honestly, uh, amazing what you're able to do with with their treatment uh, in terms of cost and everything else to get NAD. But yeah, I, I'm regularly on it. My wife is on it. I've never, I haven't yet put it on my butt though. Ben, is there a reason you put it on your butt? <laughs> well, not not up the butt, not not like not like an enema. <laughs> but basically, the uh, you know that you're you're supposed to put it on a hairless area. And I guess I've just revealed to my entire audience that I don't have a lot of hair on my behind, but I, I put it on kind of like the upper hip area of one of my butt cheeks because there's not a lot of hair there. And so it sticks a lot better. And furthermore, it's one of the few places on the body where you don't get a little bit of the, you know, you, you get a little bit of skin irritation sometimes from these patches. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That is one of the, that's one of the yeah. only drawbacks. Yeah, and 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 you also have a little bit more subcutaneous fat. At least most people do around the upper butt, and so I find I I feel it more when I put it right there. I used to put it on the inner thigh, which is another good spot because you have a little a lot more capillarization there. Uh, but that area seems to create a lot of irritation, a lot of skin friction. So, 
anyways, though, I'm, I'm just curious. Why do you use the, the NAD patches? Well, uh, I learned about it a couple of years ago when a good friend of mine, Dennis Sarfante, he's a professional baseball player, um, and he's played for a bunch of uh, teams nationally and then also in Japan. Uh, he had to he had to ultimately retire, and he got a hip replacement. And and that's my dad got a hip replacement years ago, and it took him like six months to a year to get walking again, and get on his feet again. Well, my buddy uh, got the hip replacement and then uh, started doing some NAD treatments, and he was literally out exercising and, and back to his routine again in like two weeks. And it was it was honestly stunning uh, to see him recover the yeah. way that he did. And, uh, so yeah, I had wanted to do it for a long time, but I'm a baby Ben and I'm afraid of needles. And, uh, I was, <laughs> he also told me, about, he, he also told me about the torture of like getting the NAD drip IV and, uh, just like an elephant on your chest. And I wasn't looking forward to that. So I sort of delayed it for a long time. And then I learned about ion layer where you get essentially a higher dose, a fresher, a fresher dose with none of the, you know, none of the torture. And so I was like, well, sign me up for yeah. that. And uh, so, yeah, I started doing it and um, felt amazing, recovered super, super fast from my regular training. My wife had some like, loved the long effects of COVID. She had like just the smell stuff where like certain things smelled like garbage. Uh, her favorite thing, coffee, smelled like garbage for two years, but she still oh. drank it because oh, she's in love with co coffee. And, um, and so she started doing it and three days into her loading cycle, um, two of her favorite smells came back. Um, and now oh, she wow. can taste coffee and smell coffee again, which was, you know, that's just what happened. Um, I, I don't have any explanation for it, except that's what happened. So, um, yeah, I'm a big believer in it. I think it's a, it's a God given thing. It's, it naturally occurs in your body. When you get older, you're, you're, you know, you're losing much, a lot of it. You don't have as much of it anymore. And so I just I see it as as a great example of human ingenuity and uh, treating people like they're valuable and like life is valuable and, and creating ways to sustain life and preserve life and make life better. So I, I, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what I like it for is is it's obviously beneficial for a lot of the stuff you talked about, DNA repair, injury inflammation and yeah there there was some evidence that it may help with long haul covid or covid injuries but i like it for uh for wakefulness during sleep deprivation like people who travel a lot and people who who tend to have periods of sleep deprivation do really well and you could say the same thing for creatine like 5 10 grams of creatine uh on nad and these, you know, I, I suppose we should probably write in the ion layer and have them sponsor this podcast or something but the uh the slow bleed via these they're called electrophoresis patches is very similar as you indicated to what you can get through an IV without having to drive and do the needles and, and the cost and you get a similar milligram dosage. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Do you, uh, you know, I, I don't talk to a lot of people, you know, maybe, maybe I'm stereotyping here who are, you know, the pastors and elders who are kind of into some of the biohacking stuff or on the pointing edge of the health and fitness stuff. Maybe it's because sometimes it could be associated with transhumanism or fleshly carnal pursuits or something like that. But I mean, you obviously have a history of martial arts, so you know fitness, but do you do a lot of other things for, for your health or for your longevity or anything like that? Yeah. Well, you'll, I think you'll probably be amused at this, but um, I saw you giving a plug for momentum. Um, 
and, and you said that, you know, it's this great, it's great. It's like, you know, biohacking, all this stuff. And it tastes like ice cream. I was like, well, sign me up for that. <laughs> so, um, so I do things like that. I've been doing momentum for the last two or three months. I feel great. My, my thoughts are clearer. It's just, you know, it's a good, good way to get everything I need. I, I do a lot of, um, supplements that are just, uh, sort of like nose to tail stuff, like I'm trying to get all the stuff into my system that I just normally wouldn't get into it, like liver and, you know, heart and organ stuff. And, uh, so like what I take, you know, daily is I do, I do a lot of, uh, supplements that are just, you know, organs, meats and things like that, just good fats, beef tallow. Um, and, um, obviously the NAD stuff, but I try, I try to, I try to be very cautious about what I put into my body. I'm not always the best with it. I, I love, I'm addicted to yerba mate and, uh, I know it has, you know, too much sugar in it, but that's probably the only bad thing I put into my body is, is your mate. But your mate has all the elements or necessary things to sustain life. It is super great for you. It's good that the, the tea itself is amazing for you, but it's the sugar that I know that's not good for me. You mean like those canned yerba mate drinks where it's got yerba mate, but then it's, it's got the agave or the high fructose corn syrup or whatever in it? No, this doesn't have the high fructose in it. It has just cane sugar, but, um, okay. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Well, when I was, you mentioned Mortal Kombat. When I, um, when I was uh, playing Johnny Cage, uh, and Nightwolf, actually, um, on the world tour, we, one of the legs of the tour was in Argentina. And, um, I remember, um, you know, I'm like 18 years old and I land in Argentina and everybody's walking around Argentina with this gourd in their hands with a steel straw. And I, when I say everybody, I'm not kidding, Ben. It was like a cult thing. Everybody is walking around with this gourd and the straw. And so um, so uh, one of the days I was uh, doing this show, I'm downstairs in makeup, show's going on. They're trying to get me all changed up. And these women are just like jabbering away, like just super high energy, sip, sip, sipping on this on this gourd. And I was like, what is that? And they were like, oh, gerba mate. Uh, they tried to give it to me. They were like, taste uh-huh. it. And I, I realized now I like really offended them. I was like, oh, no, no, no thank you, which is very offensive uh, to do that when someone offers you your mate. Anyway, so I never dr- I never drank it while I was there. But when I got back to the States, I was like seriously addicted to coffee. Like, I mean, I was way too much coffee. And um, I saw your mate in the store when I got home in a, in a Whole Foods and I, I started drinking it. But I was doing it like that initially. I was doing it from the gourd with the tea leaves. And did a, a, a study on it and saw that it's just packed full of uh, minerals, nutrients, vitamins, and it's super and high in antioxidants. It's it's really really good for you. Um, obviously, the way that I'm doing it now yeah. with the, the cans is not the best, but um, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, every culture has their their stimulant. You know, the Argentinians, the South Americans have the yerba mate, and you know, the Southeast Asians have kratom, and Europeans and Americans have, you know, coffee and I guess the Australians probably have, I don't know, beer, but yeah, it is, it is interesting how every, every yeah. culture has some kind of stimulant. Yeah, you, you know, this, this whole, uh, Mortal Kombat Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles thing, I think it's super interesting for two reasons. First of all, you'll laugh at this. You know, I was one of those super conservatively raised homeschooled, you know, Christian kids growing up and my parents didn't even let me watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, much less play Mortal Kombat video games. And, uh, and here you are, you know, the pastor and elder of a church and you were Michelangelo and Donatello and Johnny Cage. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the story of how you, how you got involved in martial arts and came to be in those, those, uh, games and movies. 
Yeah. Uh, so I, I grew up, I was, you know, born in 78, the 80s kid. And so when I was young, very young, there wasn't much on TV at all. And um, Saturday morning, there was like one of the channels was Kung Fu Theater, Chinese Kung Fu Theater. So it was the old, like, uh, um, uh, Chinese movies with, uh, you know, what is it? Subtitles, not subtitles. I can't even think of the word right now. You know, they're just narrating over it, but it's just terrible. But I would just, I would sit for hours and hours and hours and watch Kung Fu theater. And I just, it, I was in love with it. I, I don't, I don't quite know why, because it was such an unusual thing, to be honest with you, to be four years old and just be addicted to what, the martial arts. And it just, I thought it was so beautiful. And I think it was also just a, a matter of uh, being able to like, do something artistic and beautiful and, and be able to control your own environment and, and defend yourself. Um, and so anyway, uh, I grew up a military brat and uh, my dad was stationed in Holland. Judo was huge in Holland. And so I started judo wow. when I was four, four years old. And then we moved to Japan ultimately. And when I was in Japan, the whole time I was there, I was in two different martial arts schools because I was so in love with the martial arts, I wanted to do both these systems. And uh, my time in Japan was like Monday through Saturday. Every single day I was training uh, after school all day long. Um, and um, it ended up uh, moving from Japan to Washington, D.C. And in D.C., just by the grace of God, I, I ended up, uh, I mean, honestly, providentially, getting to learn from and becoming a private student of one of the, the best coaches in the world. Literally, he was training like the, the world champions of the day. He took me on and um, and I, I am under his care and, and his teaching. I uh, started winning all the national tournaments, the international tournaments and world championships. So basically from like 13 years old till 20 years old, I was uh, competing professionally. I was a part of numerous national karate teams. Went to the Junior Olympics, medals in the Junior Olympics, um, won every major national and international world martial arts championship in my field. Um, and uh, my whole wow. uh, my, my whole teenage years, uh, all, I, all it was, I mean, I don't even know how I graduated high school, to be honest with you, because I was never there. Um, it was just full-time training and full-time competition traveling across the country. So what happened was when I was 18 years old, I had, I had literally just turned 18. And I went to Boston and it was a, a some uh, national tournament in Boston. And uh, they were at the time, uh, David Fishoff Productions, who's like produced and done shows for like the Beatles and all the major bands and everything. They were mm -hmm. they were they were doing Mortal Kombat, the live tour, and um, they needed a Johnny Cage and they had auditioned across the country and stuff. But they sent their their representative out to this national so I went up and, and did my thing. And, and as soon as I walked out of the ring, this guy walks up to me and says, uh, what size pants do you wear? And uh, oh. I just said, <laughs> uh, it was a stranger. I'm still like gasping for air because I just did a performance. And I was like, what do you, who are you? What, what do you mean? He goes, what's your inseam size? And I said, I, what do you mean? He said, I'm with David Fishoff Productions. We produce Mortal Kombat, the, the world tour, and we want you to play Johnny Cage. Um, oh, wow. And uh, so that's how I got that. And, um, and some of the other stuff I did for like Ninja Turtles and I did some stuff for like Mission Impossible, the video game and Action Man, the cartoon and a number of other things. Uh, uh, Rainbow Studios is a, is a studio in Phoenix and they were doing a lot of big production stuff. And that's when motion capture is really hitting and getting off, uh, getting off the ground. And, um, 
uh, I ended up getting connected to them and, uh, yeah, I mean, the rest is history with that. They would just get, uh, they would call me up and say, Hey, can't tell you what you're doing. Just come on in, sign a contract. I'd come in, sign a contract, I'd get in gear. And they'd say, Hey, we're doing a video game for Mission Impossible. We need uh, a fight scene. We need somebody to get blown up. We need you to get on the stage and, and, and do it. Um, and then for, uh, Ninja Turtles, the franchise, they were, they were starting to do their cartoon production stuff and it was all motion capture. And so they contracted with Rainbow Studios and they asked me to be the uh, choreographer and, uh, for the fight scenes and the action sequences. Um, as they started doing all that and I, I played Michelangelo Donatello and I also did some of the fight scenes for, uh, Casey Jones. Wow. Well, now it sounds to me like your rise in martial arts success may have preceded the surge in popularity of the UFC. Did, did, did you ever consider the UFC or was that something that was just a little bit too late for you? No, no, actually what the uh, funny story about that is, um, I think I had just turned 18. Um, and UFC, I think they were in part number two or number three at the time. I can't remember, but it was super popular yeah. and everyone was like, this thing is nuts. Well, I'm not sure how this happened, but they sent me a contract to fight in, I, I think it was two or three. I can't remember which one it was, but I was, you know, I was 18 years old uh, and they faxed over a contract and I actually considered it at first because, you know, it was, it was billed as no holds barred martial arts. And, um, yeah. I was like, I, that's, that's how I, that's how I think this should be done in a way. Like, if you really want to see who the best fighter is, you need to make it like a real fight. Like don't put a ton of restrictions on it. Um, and, uh, then the last page of the facts I remember was, was all the holes that were barred. Like you couldn't pull the ear, you couldn't grab the coin or whatever <laughs> it was. And so I thought, yeah. well, I don't like, I don't like that. It just seemed like there were a lot of rules there that were sort of favoring people that, wanted to just fight on the ground um, and you couldn't do certain things to, to sort of stop that. And so I was like, well, I also don't know if I want to get like broken into pieces. And I'm pretty sure this happened around the same time as I got the contract for Mortal Kombat. So I was like, I don't know if I want to get like a broken bone or something or, or get my face all wrecked before I go do Mortal Kombat. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Are you, are you a fan of the UFC? Uh, yeah, 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 I definitely am. I, I don't get to watch it a lot. Um, but I'm, I'm, I will forever and ever be passionate about the martial arts. Um, obviously I'm passionate about what I do now, but I, I will never lose my love. I have never loved, lost my love for, it's only increased the martial arts. I, I absolutely uh, love it. It's, it's, it's a gift that God's given to me, but, um, I, I just absolutely am in awe of what humans can do with their bodies and how we could, we could learn to control our environment and defend ourselves and our loved ones. Um, and, uh, and yeah. If you're in your thirties or anywhere beyond, you got to start eliminating senescent cells in your body. These are the so-called zombie cells that make you feel old before it's time to feel old. They linger in your body after their useful function, hence their name zombie cells, wasting energy and precious nutrition and leading to so many middle-aged symptoms like low energy, brain fog, slow workout recovery, and joint discomfort. But luckily, you can nuke these senescent cells. There are a bunch of different newly discovered plant-derived ingredients that when expertly combined can help to reduce senescent cells. And the folks at Neurohacker have cracked the code on putting them all together into a fantastic product called Qualia Senolytic. Qualia Senolytic. Now, this could be one of the biggest aging breakthroughs of the decade based on what we know about senescent cells. It could take years off how old you feel. 
in just months. And you only use it twice a month, six capsules twice a month. Super simple. I'm actually on my cycle right now. I just took six this morning. I'll take six tomorrow morning. Then I set it and forget it for a month, nuking my senescent cells and feeling younger in the process. So if you're sick of feeling old before your time, try, try Qualia Senolytic. Go to neurohacker.com slash Ben Seno, S-E-N-O, neurohacker.com slash Ben Seno, backed by a 100-day money-back guarantee, and that code Ben Seno will give you an additional 15% off at neurohacker.com forward slash Ben Seno. I don't think it's any secret that I'm not a huge fan of big, clunky New Year's resolutions. Why? Because they usually rely on willpower, and willpower is a tool of your conscious mind that controls just like two to four percent of your daily actions your habits whether good or bad in fitness or nutrition or productivity and beyond they're all deeply ingrained and that creates an internal thermostat that keeps you stuck in your current situation well the good news is you're not alone i've worked with thousands of clients who were all trying the right things but felt stuck and realized their willpower was not what helped them get out of their scenario Instead, they needed direction, guidance, accountability, a plan, a program, and a big why. And I provide all of that with my revolutionary coaching programs. I have retooled the coaching programs. We have amazing options for you in our brand new elite programs from bengreenfieldlife.com. So you can join now and redefine your reality with a limited time offer of 40% off of your first month of coaching. Here's how. Go to bengreenfieldlife.com slash elite for a personalized coach set up perfectly for you to achieve any goal you want safely, quickly, and effectively. bengreenfieldlife.com forward slash E-L-I-T-E. And I'll see you on the inside. I think I tried to find you on Instagram and I don't, it didn't appear you're very active on there. Maybe I found the wrong handle, but it was Ninja Pastor. And obviously this kind of leads into this, this kind of interesting marriage of martial arts and you being a pastor and an elder. How'd that come to be? Well, um, so I came to, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. So you were, you were homeschooled then? Yeah, I was homeschooled K through 12 uh, to uh, uh, my dad was from Miami. My mom from Detroit. Uh, they both grew up in, you know, slightly troubled adolescent, teenage and young adult environments and moved to Idaho to try and establish a little bit more of a more of a, a family in a safe and protected and a little bit less urban environment and wound up raising me and my two brothers and two sisters in in a very conservative Christian home in, in North Idaho, in Lewiston, Idaho. Wow. Wow. Well, yeah, that was, uh, I think that was a gift in your life uh, to have that kind of upbringing. I, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Um, and so I heard the gospel later on in life. And ultimately, no, I came to Christ after a drug uh, and alcohol addiction uh, turned to Christ. And, um, and so, yeah, my my life began to change. Uh, I'm still a I'm still a work in progress, but uh, had a love for God, love for His Word, love for people, wanted people to know God and and to have peace with God, like I had received. And um, and so uh, that was all happening in my life while I was also a martial artist, and I I, I owned martial arts schools and oh. all of that. So so you you were you were addicted to drugs and alcohol at the same time that you were involved in martial arts. That came later. So like, yeah, it, this, I think around 21 years old, um, made some really, really poor, uh, sinful decisions, 
was with the wrong people and started to do stuff that I never would have done before. I mean, I, I always saw the, the, the world of drugs and drug addiction as, as gross and icky and, you know, how could you do something like that to yourself? And it all ended one night when I went out to a club with some friends that were in town from Hollywood, some martial arts guys, famous martial arts guys. And uh, took ecstasy with them for the first time, and that led to oh. about a year. That took that led to about a year of depravity, um, just abandoning my wife and my 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 kids, and going off in drug and alcohol addiction. Almost died uh, several times. Wow! Um, and um, and I really got to the place where I, I I went to the scriptures after my life had just blown up, and started reading the gospels and reading the call of Christ to come to Him. Uh, to be saved, to die to yourself, and and to trust in Him for eternal life, and I began to question whether I'd ever actually understood that message, and uh, that's where I turned to Christ, and and so yeah, like I that went behind me, and I I, I still had the martial arts stuff going on, and when I opened a martial arts school, a super successful martial arts school. Um, it was it was just a it was a joy. It was a very successful martial arts program. And um, I was doing ministry at the same time. So like, I, I just wanted to serve Christ. And while I owned this business and did martial arts, and so I would, you know, have my martial arts school, I would go out and do evangelism. And I was in, in seminary just to learn. You, you mean, you mean, you mean like, uh, like street preaching? Um, that, I mean, I, occasionally, but it was mostly like, when I say like street ministry evangelism is more like, literally going out to like the public square, wherever there were events or there are people and just going to engage in conversation with them to give them the good news. Mm. Um, and uh, really passionate about apologetics. That's the, the defense of the Christian faith. And so uh, I, I was always studying that. So I sort of had two things going on. I was, I was, I was in my martial arts world and martial arts life, but I was also loving God, growing my relationship with Christ and, 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 serving God in different various ministries. So um, I never actually had any intention after my addiction and coming to Christ of of doing like full-time ministry, being a pastor. I even told my wife one day, I said, I don't have, I'm never going to do that. I'm not worthy of something like that. I'll be happy just to own our business, preach Christ, and just I'll clean the toilets at the, at the church. And I, and I meant that. And my wife told me when I said that to her, I think you need to pray about that. I don't think that's what God has for you. And oh. I was like, well, that's what I, I was like, well, that's what I want. <laughs> yeah. I'll just clean the toilets or hand out bulletins. And I, and I did mean it. Um, but oh. a- after some time, the pastors of the church that I was at many years ago, um, started telling me, we see these gifts in you. We see this. We want you to start doing more. And, um, I had a pastor who knew me very, very, very well. And he told me, Hey, Jeff, I want you to teach. Uh, sun, a Sunday service, and I and I told him no. I said I I didn't feel comfortable with that. I didn't feel like I, I was supposed to do that or worthy of that. Does does uh, does 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 teach a Sunday service mean preach a sermon? Yes. Oh and, wow, that's got to um, be a little nerve wracking. Well, it was, and I also just didn't feel worthy of it. And um, yeah. I, I I I literally I Ben I told him no. I was like no, I'm not going to do that. And so he he gently and graciously tried to convince me and tell me why he thought I needed to do it. And um, I kept saying, I don't feel comfortable. And finally, he said, Jeff, I'm I'm your pastor. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, <laughs> you're you oh, need wow. you need to 
you need to teach that you need to teach this is your gift you need to do it and i because he said i'm telling you to do this as your pastor i i said okay i'm out of obedience to god i'm going to i'm going to listen to my pastor right now he's not telling me to do something bad um so i'm going to do it so that led into that one sunday led into uh, uh just a bunch more over the next year where i was teaching at different churches doing different camps and things like that and it uh, got to the point where the lord made it very very clear that I needed to give up um, my school and let it go and 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 step into vocational full-time ministry. He made it very clear. It's a long story with a lot of people speaking into my life and just a lot of circumstances. So I literally did, Ben. I When it became clear this was like an act of obedience to God, it was clearly calling me to do it. I gave the keys to one of my karate students and gave him the karate school um, and wow. walked away from and walked away from it. Um, you just gave it to him. You didn't. You didn't like sell it or anything, or or well, you, you had you I, had no no financial exit. I had no financial exit. I had offered them the school. They wanted to take it. They were supposed to pay me something, um, but I was that wasn't for me. Why I was doing it? I was if they could, they needed to, and they ended up not uh, doing it. And um, yeah, I walked away. And dude, it was it was uh, it was when I reflect on it, I'm like. That was really the the spirit of God moving in that situation because what I was doing from a human perspective was absolutely undeniably stupid. Um, I was stepping yeah. into a full time vocational role as a pastor with no money to speak of to care for my family. I walked away from a martial arts school that was highly profitable, um, highly highly profitable, and um, I just took a step of faith in saying, "All right, Lord, if this is what you're calling me to do, I'm going to do it." And so I, I that's how I started doing a vocational pastoral work at the church I was at. I was also at the time, um, this I'm leaving parts out, but I, I became the, the head chaplain at a hospital in Phoenix that's a drug and alcohol rehab facility. Uh, it's full-time, around-the-clock, doctors, nurses, therapists, uh, medical detox. And um, I was the, the head chaplain over there, a Christian program they had there. And... Um, from there, so many people started coming out of drug and alcohol addiction to Christ. It became very clear they needed to be cared for on a full-time basis. They're in a very unique, uh, sensitive situation. And so the elders of the church I was at agreed that the Lord was calling me to plant and to serve these people full-time. And so I I did another big step of, of, of faith, and I just I stepped into planting Apologia Church um, after the elders laid hands on me and sent me. Um, and we planted the church at the drug rehab in the family building. Uh, and the people in front of me were all um, on detox medication in halfway houses, families and lives destroyed. And uh, the first night we had church, there were about 10 people in the room, lives absolutely demolished and had just turned to Christ, all of them. And that was, uh, that was 2010. And now wow. Apologia Church uh, has about, I'd say on a good Sunday, where everyone's there, close to a thousand people, eight hundred fifty somewhere. If everybody was there all at once with kids, um, and yeah, that's how that's how we got where we are. Wow, that, yeah, that that's a pretty good sized church. Yeah. By the way, did you say you almost died when you were uh, when when you were yeah. on ecstasy? Yeah, really. Yeah. So everybody, you know, one of the things. And any and any drug anybody uses, everyone has like ways like to avoid ODing or 
you watch out for this sort of a thing. But at ecstasy, everyone knows that you'll overheat. And, um, yeah, you know, you, you burn up all the serotonin in your brain. And so it becomes at, at a point when you're using so much of it, you've got like nothing left to really feel the drug anymore. It just feels like you're just taking meth or something. And you're just, you're just energized. So you're constantly chasing that ecstasy and high, but I burned my brain up over that year, uh, just with a ton of ecstasy and other stuff, but especially ecstasy. Well, the first time I tried ecstasy, I took one pill at about 1 a.m. and I was I was high and feeling it until the like the next afternoon. And um by the end of the year, I couldn't take one pill. I was taking like five, six pills a night. Um oh, and it's that it's it's dangerous because you could take one pill and overheat. Um and I was taking five or six. Do you mean do you mean you were you were taking that much to like party or or just to sleep or something no no it's a party i was disappearing oh, okay. and partying and disappearing for days and partying for days and oh wow um Jeez. yeah and and so you know five or six pills one night and you know you know you're in trouble when you're overheating and so you're always looking out for that so you try and drink a lot of water and keep cool well i'm at this after party after doing a ton of ecstasy one night and uh you know nobody there cares about anybody it's all fake it's all it's all a facade but, you know, everyone's in there, you know, jabbering away and talking high on ecstasy, lights are dark. And all of a sudden, I, I realized my heart is coming out of my chest. I mean, it it mm. it is hurting. It's beating so hard. And then I realized that I am like blood, 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 right? I look down at my arms and my I'm just, I, it's dark and I can still see the brightness. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, this is not good. So I run to the uh, kitchen and I grab a big bag of ice out of the, out of the freezer and everything I could. And I go to the, the bathroom. Everyone's like, what's wrong? I was like, nothing, nothing. Just leave me alone. I turned down the air conditioning as low as I could possibly get it. I went to the bathtub. I poured a cold bath, dumped all the ice into it. And I uh, jumped in the bath and I tried to put all my pulse points under the water to cool myself down. I was getting hotter and hotter. My heart's beating faster and faster. And they, I, I'm just, I just melted everything in the bathtub and the water is getting warm now. And so I realized I'm overheating. I'm I'm probably going to die. And so I, I jump out of the tub. I, I sit on the bed and I knew what I was doing. I knew that the real reason I was doing what I was doing, I was trying to find satisfaction elsewhere other than God. I was trying to find peace or joy somewhere outside of God. I knew that this was between me and God. And so I remember I I I just started talking to God for the first time in like a long time. And I said to him, I said, Lord, I know I know that what I'm doing is sinful. I know what I'm doing is wrong. And I know that you have every right to kill me. I said, but please just don't kill me yet. And, um, oh, wow. and, I, and I just said, please don't kill me yet. And as soon as I prayed that prayer, it's the truth. As soon as I prayed that prayer, all of a sudden, my heart just went right back to normal. Everything got back to normal. And I was no longer in this like stupor, uh, this drug stupor i was sober and it was just an it was huh. a like a snap snap of a finger everything came back now based on what you know about based on what you know about drugs and drug metabolism that doesn't really just happen right that would have to be something a little bit supernatural or miraculous it, no it, it certainly was and um i'd like to say i'd love to say i'd love it if the story were god saved me from this you know overdose 
And then I immediately turned to Christ and everything changed and my heart changed. But I was so just horrible and uh, pursuing this thing that even after he saved my life there, about two weeks later is when he finally crushed my life. And and, and I, I, I still continue to use after that. But in two weeks, God crushed my life. And one day, literally before noon, my phone was shut off. I had an eviction notice on my door. They dragged my car away and repossessed it. They turned my water off, electric off. Um, and the person I was working for at the time told all of his employees, I'm not paying you, sue me. So I have no money, Whoa. no lights, no water. I'm getting evicted. My car's pulled away and it couldn't be worse. I'm sitting in an apartment with my wife, my one-year-old and like my newborn baby girl. And I've destroyed my life. And so God just ripped everything off from underneath me. And I just basically had nothing but him and to sit in silence. And I just got into the word, started reexamining the gospels and the call of Christ to come to him. And that's where God crushed my life and then saved my life. Wow. Wow. You, you know, it, it's interesting. And by the way, you were an early adopter of, of cold thermogenesis, probably before you even knew it with your whole ice bath trick. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you, you're in the biohacking without even realizing it. That's right. Uh, so, so, you know, when you said that you called on God and then you later said that you found Christ and that that helped pull you away from this lifestyle of drugs and alcohol for people listening in, I mean, why is that? How, how do you explain that to somebody, what it feels like to have that hole in your soul filled with something else? Or how does that actually work? Yeah. So you mentioned uh, the documentary for the History Channel called The Stoned Ages. And they had they had specifically wanted, and this goes into your question, they specifically wanted to talk to somebody that approached drug and alcohol addiction from an explicitly Christian position and foundation. Um, and so they searched and searched and searched and they finally landed on the hospital that I was, that I was at. And they asked me to do it because from my perspective, God's word is God's revelation to humanity. It represents his own voice. He is speaking. He tells us about himself. He tells us about our, uh, ourselves. He tells us about the world. He tells us what's broken. Um, and from the perspective of, of what God says in his word, drug and alcohol addiction is just it's an expression of of idolatry. And we are made in God's image. We're made to know God and to enjoy God forever. But the problem is, is that we're rebels against God. We want to go our own way. We want to fashion our own little idols and, and not have God. And so we do that. Like uh, there's a famous theologian in history that said that the human heart is a natural idol making factory and it is never idle in making idols. Um, <laughs> that's and great. It, yeah, it is great. And, and, and that's true with drug and alcohol addiction. One of the things that you see is that there's so much humanity visible in the addiction and in the pursuit of whatever it is. Now, it doesn't have to be drug and alcohol addiction. It could be sex addiction, whatever the case may be. But what it really is, is that you and I will chase an idol to get what we can only truly have in God. So people, I, I should sit in the, in the, in, in uh, the hospital. And just ask people, why did you chase the heroin? Why were you going after the meth? What were what were you trying to gain by pursuing the pills or the alcohol? And it's always something very human, something very image of God. And it's always things like, well, I was super anxious. And so I would drink 
um, I was worried. And so I would drink to not be worried or I needed peace. And so I would take the pills or shoot the heroin mm. or I was pursuing pleasure and, and happiness. And so I was taking the ecstasy, whatever the case may be. It's, it's just the pursuit of an idol. You are chasing, we are chasing uh, that thing for what we can only ultimately have satisfied in God. And so, uh, you know, you're pursuing, you're pursuing the heroin for peace, but it's a, it's a false peace. It's a fiction. It's a lie. It's fake. It's four hours of, of, of fake. It's not even real peace. You're still you and you're still you in God's world. And what's broken is you. Um, and God is the God of peace. If you want peace, he reconciles us to himself through Christ, brings us to peace. He's the God of peace. Um, there's no chaos and storm in him and, uh, his promises are true and our hope in him is true and guaranteed. And so, uh, ultimately drug and alcohol addiction is the pursuit of an idol. And the answer is we're broken. We're rebels against God. We don't want God. So we chase the substandard God. And the problem is, is that false gods will never satisfy real spiritual needs. And so you'll chase yeah. it forever and you're never going to get it. Um, and so from a Christian perspective, you have to look at it holistically though, because what you can't say is, okay, really what's wrong is that you're a rebel, you're a sinner, you need peace with God, you need Christ, turn to Christ and live. You can't, you can say that that's a foundational problem, but scripture is comprehensive and holistic about humanity. We're not just a spiritual being, we're a physical being. And so from yeah. a Christian perspective, you have to settle, you have to settle the spiritual issue is what's driving everything. But the physical issues, you may need detox. Um, like, you know, one of the first things I say to somebody that's that's just in sort of the throes of addiction is what are you doing? What are you taking? And if it's something like a benzodiazepine or any kind of opiate or um, anything like that, the first thing I say is we need to go right to detox because you could die if you stop taking a benzodiazepine. You could die if you stop uh, drinking alcohol and the throes of an alcohol an alcohol addiction. And so we try to look at it comprehensively and say, okay, we want to settle the main thing. And that's that you need Christ and peace with God. You need your heart changed and your mind changed. And that's something that only God can do. And you need peace with God that he brings through the gospel. But we also got to settle this issue of this really painful experience you're going to have now, um, no longer taking the heroin or no longer taking the benzodiazepines. Yeah, it's like you need God to fill that eternal hole in your soul, but you may need a few days of high dose NAD to make sure your body doesn't completely flip out as you learn how yeah. to put those pieces into you know, place. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, it's funny, Ben, is that um, I learned something. Um, cause I had no intention ever of being a chaplain in a hospital. I had no intention of a drug and alcohol ministry. I literally had never thought at one time. And it's just something that the Lord providentially had fallen into my lap. Um, but, um, one of the things that, um, was that I learned was how Christians in history have dealt with drug and alcohol addiction. I learned that Baptist and Presbyterian pastors like, 200 years ago, you used to keep uh, like bottles of whiskey um, close at hand. So if they did have somebody struggling with an alcohol addiction, they could taper them down over time to help them to get off of it because they understood you couldn't just stop it because you could die. So imagine that you got Baptist pastors that are like feeding addicts um, yeah. uh, with whiskey and they're, they're doing right. it because they didn't, they didn't want them to die. So they would taper them down. 
Right. It'd be like a modern day pastor having a pill cutter for opioid capsules, you know, or tablets in their in their top drawer right. of their desk, you know, to, to help people come yeah. off. You know, it is kind of interesting yeah. though, because you know, for us in the in the fitness and the exercise world, you see a lot of former drug and alcohol abusers turn to things like ultra marathoning or Ironman triathlon, you know, kind of continuing that cycle of escapism, you know, addiction to chronic repetitive motion some new infatuation. And sometimes, you know, I, I almost, you know, d- despite that obviously being a, a much healthier addiction, if you want to call it, I still think there's a lot of people kind of obsessed with exercise and fitness that, that are using that to, to fill the eternal hole in their soul, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, um, there's a, my, my favorite catechism question in, in both, uh, for both the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of Faith is the first one that we use and it's uh what is man's primary purpose the old way it said i love to it's what is man's chief end and it says Mm. to glorify god and to enjoy him forever and that's what we were made for according to scripture you are meaningful and beautiful and you have been purposed by god you are not a cosmic accident you are in the image of god you have value and dignity and you have worth and you were made in the image of God to know him. That's that's your ultimate purpose. It's the foundation of every moment of your existence is you were made to bring glory to God and to enjoy him forever. But if our relationship with God is broken, then we're going to try to seek satisfaction and peace and wholeness elsewhere. And so, yeah, for some people, it's heroin. For some people, it's sex. For some people, it's idolatry in some other form. It could even be the idolatry of some exercise or some other. You're trying to fill this thing uh, this this that's broken in you with this substance or this person or this stuff or this pursuit uh, to try to find joy, which you can only ultimately have in God and because that's what we were made for. Yeah, yeah. That's actually it's kind of the entire premise of my book, uh, Fit, Fit Soul. You know, this idea of a... Being a soul with a body, not a body with a soul, and the idea of spiritual fitness being ultimately the source of of true fulfillment and happiness. Yeah. But you know, you also tend to see kind of like this parallel conversation, especially occurring nowadays with books like The Immortality Key by Brian Murrasku. How there, there's an argument that there is a history in Christianity of people actually using these same substances that you and I right now are, are vilifying as pathways to commune with the divine as ways to talk with God. I mean, Brian, Brian even talks in the immortality key about how, you know, different forms of spiced wine or spiked wine were elements of the Eucharist and that Christians were using, you know, forms of LSD like ergo and that, you know, magical mushrooms probably played a role. What's your take on all that? Yeah, it's, it's fiction and, uh, no, is no, no, um, no historian or scholar with any integrity would actually make that kind of connection to the Christian faith. It's, it's just, um, it's just, it's fiction. It's, it's truly, truly fiction because you can see in the do- in the, in the documents themselves, because that forms the groundwork of what formed the people of God in the church. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, God explicitly, this is way back in the history of the Bible, God explicitly addresses communication with the dead, sorcery, taking substances to try to communicate with the dead and the other side. 
he condemns it because the problem is what you're communicating with is not what you think. And he's trying to protect his people from the kind of contact they may make with the other side that they don't really want to be involved in. So he warns his people against pharmacia, against sorcery, against taking substances to communicate with the other side, to get into an altered state of consciousness. Um, and if you look in Galatians in the New Testament, so that's the Old Testament, the New Testament, God explicitly speaks to the issue of pharmakia, and you can hear it in the word pharmacy, pharmakia, um, and sorcery. It's the taking of substances to alter your state of consciousness to be able to communicate with the other side. And so scripture condemns that kind right. of practice. And and by by the way, you just you just made a good point to alter your state of consciousness for the purposes of communing with the divine, because a lot of people jump in and say, oh, you're drinking a cup of coffee and you're wearing an NAD patch and that's altering your state of consciousness. But if you were putting on the NAD patch to say, hey, this is going to allow me to pray better and I'm going to go seek wisdom from the spirits and maybe from God, because this NAD patch is going to really help me do that. It would actually kind of fall into the category of pharmacia, right? Right. Yeah. You the, the the when you talk about pharmacia and sorcery, the idea was, and it's interesting because today this is so popular with DMT and ayahuasca and all these yeah. trips. I mean, you have actually some good dudes like ex Navy SEALs talking about how you know they they did a DMT trip and it helped them in many yeah. ways. And saw that there actually is more to the universe than just this physical structure they saw there was there's something there's something beyond the physical that i'm seeing and i'm glad that they know that now but i don't like where they're going with it but it's very popular uh to to take these substances to see the other side or to get into the other realm and that is what god is prohibiting and calling people to turn away from and again it's because of the danger the spiritual danger that it poses to us because Yes, there's another realm. Yes, there is a heavenly realm. And yes, there's another side. And yes, there are real heavenly beings and spiritual entities that are all around us. That's a biblical worldview. It's, it's something that Christians don't talk enough about, just the activeness of the other side. But one of the things scripture is really clear about is that you, you cannot communicate with the dead. You're not talking to another person on the other side. You will be talking to a heavenly being, i.e., an angel or right. a fallen angel. <laughs> I'm a, uh, uh, yeah, machine elf or a praying mantis or a purple fairy or you know whatever other entity is displaying you itself to you. That yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. And isn't that funny too? When you listen to so many of uh, uh, the common experiences of people who take these DMT trips, they'll they'll regularly talk about that. Like, yeah, I I did my first trip and these entities I met on the other side were so helpful and they were so loving and so nice. But I went back like three or four times and then it's like, I need to avoid these things. These things are nefarious and they're scary. Um, And it's just like, well, that's God already told that story, you know, back to Moses. Um, (laughs) You're making a really good point because I actually, you know, I have a lot of friends who have found God, you know, as you alluded to, or you haven't been atheist and aren't atheists anymore. You know, I mean, no no guy's a plant medicine practitioner says, yeah, atheists come in, but they don't come out. And, uh, you know, it's, it certainly can be a path to realize, especially if you're an atheist, you don't believe in a spiritual dimension. It can be a path to all of a sudden very forthrightly believe in the existence of a spiritual world. The problem is, as you were just talking about, you know, your sixth, your seventh, your eighth time in, you start interacting with elements of the spiritual world that dictate that there's very few people I know, at least, who have returned over and over again for plant medicine experiences and have not started to kind of slide towards um, 
you know, humans are inherently good. All we got to do is love each other. You know, sometimes there's that. So we really don't need God. We just need ourselves. Then you also see a lot of people sliding towards things like schizophrenia and bipolar and weird personality disorders. And it's one of those things that seems innocent at first, but really builds up. And I mean, you you talked about like the Navy SEALs, you know, do a a boga or DMT or psilocybin or whatever, in in many cases for for, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. You see sometimes the same thing for things like head injuries. And, and yeah, that, that stuff can be effective, especially for trauma or finding a new path in life. But I really don't know anybody who has not gone on a drug-free, facilitated or not facilitated vision quest for anywhere from two to seven days in the wilderness with a journal, it, typically water fasted, and come back out of that, not being in the exact same state of awareness, trauma release, you know, communication with God, etc. So I think that just because there's, you know, multiple paths to the top of the mountain doesn't mean every path is is uh is good or risk-free you know is a is a good one yeah this is really important too in terms of how i think we look at this holistically as christians this issue of like drugs and 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 taking drugs so like the the bible god's word condemns through and through drunkenness the abuse of alcohol but it also has glowingly high praise for alcohol in the right context you know, celebrating, feasting. God says amazing things about wine. And so there's a balance, an amazing balance in scripture where it's it's not like some pietistic Christians say, like, I just abstain and stay away from uh, because the substance is evil. God doesn't call the substance evil. It's what we do with it that is ultimately evil. So like, for example, in terms of like drug and alcohol addiction, what I say is um, praise God for morphine, which... yeah. You know, some people think, what do you mean? I go, praise God for morphine, but also a curse on morphine, depending on how you're using it. So praise God for morphine. When you get in a car accident and snap your arm, you are praising God for the morphine, but also a curse on morphine when the person is just pursuing it for the pleasure and the good feelings and the peace that it brings them because they're just engaging in idolatry and something that will never bring satisfaction to their soul. I say praise God for cannabis, yeah. um, which makes a lot of Christians angry. Um, and I say a curse on cannabis. It depends on how you're using it. If you're using it like historically it's been used, like with the Queen of England who, was ha- who had menstrual cramps that were so debilitating she would pass out, they gave her cannabis and it, it helped get her through those awful periods of, of her, her cycle. Um, and, you know, uh, I'll just give you an example of one of the things I learned I didn't always know this. I learned this at the hospital. We had um, we had a patient there that was just wrecked, and I mean, I, this guy was his body was barely held together for, because of this terrible accident he was in, like like thirty years prior, and he was on so many opiates, um, and um, he's just taking this stuff like candy, and it, it and now he's just suffering in the consequences of detox that is happening to him every day if he doesn't take it. On time and these high doses, he'll start to detox and his, his, his world hurts. Well, the doctors, you know, were sitting down in the daily thing with the, with the doctors and the, and the nurses and they pull out his chart and they're like, well, this is really bad. He's in a lot of pain. He needs something, but we got to bring him down because he's taking too much. And, you know, so they're talking about how can we balance out the fact that he needs opiates for pain, but like, how do we do this? And so 
the head guy there goes, well, you know, if he would just start taking cannabis, we wouldn't have this problem. And so I laughed and I said, that's what he said. No, if, if he would use cannabis for pain, he wouldn't be dealing with all the toxicity issues. Yeah. And I was like, well, really? He really, I was like, what do you mean? He goes, Jeff, he goes, have you noticed that we don't have a, a cannabis detox protocol at the hospital? Nobody in here is detoxing from cannabis. Did you notice that? And I was like, yeah, you're right. And they were like, cause there is no detox protocol we have for cannabis. We would just tell them to do outpatient cause they have a mental um, addiction to the cannabis. Um, but he said, you know, you got a choice. He says, if you're dying of cancer, you, you're either going to have an opiate addiction, um, guaranteed if you're taking opiates for the pain, or you can do cannabis for the pain and use it in a balanced way. And I thought, I really had to think about that. I was like, yeah, it is all about using it for the glory of God and using it rightly. Um, and so yeah. for Christians, a way, to, a way to look at it rightly is not to say the substance is evil. No, it can be used for good. It's just how you use it. Are you using it as an idol? Are you abusing it? Um, because all of these things can be very good things for the preservation of human life or for the flourishing of human life. Like my wife just recently got her first kidney stone. Um, she literally thought she was dying. I was like, I've never seen her in this much pain. And I rushed her to the hospital. And let me tell you, we were praising God when they stuck her with the, with the morphine. Um, yeah. But also we're driving home. Dude, we're driving home. They had just hit her with morphine. So she's now feeling like she's okay. And we're driving home. And on every street corner in Phoenix right now is somebody that's almost dying from fentanyl or from, yeah. from heroin uh, on the corner. And, but it's the same, it's the same essential thing to the body, but it's, it's how you're using it. Yeah, you're making a, a really good point. I mean, you know, I've I've used a small microdose of psilocybin to work on creative writing. I've used a microdose of LSD before a long run. I've used a microdose of iboga, like South African bush extract, before a hard weight training workout. I've also used uh, like hape and psilocybin to enhance sensory perception during hunting, all at responsible doses. However, the argument like i had uh i had doug wilson you know the wilson family are they're, they're friends of ours on my podcast uh when he came out with his book on cannabis and there are there are others i'm sure you're aware of in christian circles who will say well the differentiation between alcohol and and pharmacia or plant medicines is that it's a lot easier to get accidentally high and misuse and abuse the latter, meaning like it's really, really easy to actually take 100 micrograms of acid versus 10 micrograms. And therefore, you're playing with a lot of fire in that scenario. And then furthermore, the other argument you hear is that alcohol is differentiated from pharmacia in the Bible because pharmacia allows you to commune with the divine, whereas nobody ever really has a deep spiritual experience when slobbering drunk. And, you know, my... My thoughts on our, yeah, responsibility and temperance is required for everything. If you can't display responsibility and temperance, I mean, don't go around something and don't use it if you're around somebody who, who has that same issue. And then B, I mean, you could freaking, you know, take enough coffee to be an entheogen or a psychedelic and yeah. overdose on that. I mean, it, it, in my opinion, it all comes down to responsibility, temperance, the intent of use and yeah. again, I think just because something can be used to commune with the divine, if you take a high enough dose of it, doesn't mean like avoid it at all costs. I think it still has a purpose. Yeah, yeah it, it can be. And I, and I generally would agree with all of that. And Doug, Doug is a very good friend of mine. He's actually mentored me and 
He's been someone I've leaned on over the years. I, I, I love the man. I've, I've had dinner at his house on a number of occasions. I, I love Doug. Definitely disagree with him on the issue of, of cannabis. Um, I think there's some some major inconsistencies he has that he just ha- he hasn't uh, examined. Um, and um, yeah, I think that uh, Christians largely have some inconsistencies in this area. And I think it's important for us to overcome them because um, inconsistency is not glorifying to God. And I know all of us have them. And uh, when we're inconsistent, we're not being like God, who is fully consistent. He cannot lie. Um, God is the truth. And so I think we should overcome these inconsistencies because they could be quite de- devastating. And I'll just get, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. When, when as Christians, you vilify cannabis. Now, I'm not promoting people to go out and smoke pot right now. Okay. I want everyone to know that I, I, I've called it idolatry when it's abused right. and all the rest. But when, um, when, when we condemn cannabis and just say that's an evil thing, don't Christians shouldn't do it. What I want to say is, do you understand that you, you could be potentially with that belief devastating somebody unnecessarily? Physically. And if someone says, what do you mean by that? Okay. If they're dying of cancer and they're in pain, you've got some choices before you for pain relief and to help you through this. Okay. And one choice is you could, you could get the opiates and you are absolutely guaranteed long term opiate use means you are chemically dependent and the damage that it will do to your body, to your system. The pain of the detox is unreal. Sure, I mean, I've been in hospital and seen so many people detoxing from opiate addiction, and it is not pretty. It is extraordinarily painful. When you tell somebody you're dying of cancer, don't take the cannabis, take the opiate. Instead, you are guaranteeing them a chemical dependency on something that is going to wreck them, and it's going to be very painful. You You have another choice. And the other yeah. choice is you could take something that is natural, that God gave to the world, that literally you have elements of in cannabis, like cannabinoids, that your that are your system knows what to do with. <laughs> it, it's like, yeah. oh, I recognize that. Yeah, I know what that is. Isn't that funny how it grows in the ground and it's in our system? And you're like, oh, and it's for pain. And so yeah. you have something that's not going to devastate you physically dying of cancer like the opiate. And so my honest, I've said this publicly, if I'm dying of cancer, the pain relief that I'm going towards first and foremost is to cannabis. Um, Because that's going to be a way where I can assure that my, I'm still going to be physically there for longer for my family than I would be on the opiates. If you're on the opiate, you may get a, you may, you may get a prescription from a doctor. Hey, you're dying of cancer. Here's this, here's this uh, prescription for opiates. You need it. You're in pain. Listen, have you ever seen yeah. somebody that's in the throes of an opiate addiction or like on pills like Percocets, Oxycontin, whatever? They're not there. Not only are they chemically dependent, they disappear. Like they just start yeah. nodding off. They're gone. Um, and so uh, I would choose the more natural route that's going to do less damage to my system. Here's the deal. It's a fallen world. There's no way out of the fact that we have pain and we can find ways to relieve people of pain. I want to take the route that is that is going to be a little more beneficial than the opiate. Yeah, cannab- cannabis or, or arguably kratom in some circumstances. So how kratom, big of an yeah. issue is yeah. this, uh, you know, for you as a pastor, I mean, obviously drug use is rampant in society and widespread. 
I mean, I'm just curious. Is is this a big problem, like in the church too? In what way? I mean, like, for example, I live in Washington State where cannabis is legal. And when I go to church, sometimes I wonder, gosh, I wonder how many people in here just like struggle because our church is literally in the same parking lot as a dispensary. And I, you know, whether it's cannabis or other drugs, you know, I'm just curious how many Christians struggle with these issues and maybe don't bring it up to their fellow Christians because it is kind of considered to be a little bit more of a serious problem than I don't know. Yeah. You know, maybe you mean, drinking, you, you, drinking an extra beer at night or something. Yeah. Do you mean like the abuse of the substance or you mean just like, yeah, Christians? yeah like, like, like substance yeah. abuse. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's, it's huge. It's always, it's always an issue. Anytime you, you're dealing with humanity, you're dealing with people who, who need, uh, either they, they know God and they need to grow in that relationship with God and be sanctified, or you, you're dealing with somebody who doesn't know him and needs to be reconciled to God and, and brought to peace with God. So in that, in the, in that world, as long as you have image bearers of God that need God, um, and there, there's going to be a struggle with some form of idolatry and addiction. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's going to be at varying degrees. So like in our experience as a church, We'll deal with it regularly with a lot of new people that will come in. We'll find out they have some sort of an addiction. So we're ministering to them and helping them through that. Sometimes we have people that come in that are in the throes of a pretty bad addiction. So we're trying to help them get to, uh, uh, we try to do it comprehensively, deal with a spiritual issue, but also deal with the physical issue. And so get them to detox. Um, I think it is a problem and it will always be a problem as long as the world has fallen. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I, I think uh, I was actually talking with one of my friends who's working on a website now. It's like an anonymous website where people can go and join support groups. And he's specifically targeted towards Christians who are embarrassed or don't have some sort of drug and alcohol abuse outreach program in their church. And I think it's actually a fantastic idea because I think one of the big problems is a lot of Christians are particularly embarrassed to talk about it to their fellow Christians if they struggle with I don't know. Which is a yeah, well, no, can, which is a problem. Can, can, I think cannabis or psilocybin or whatever else. Yeah, Christians, I think you know the church is for is for sinners and not for the righteous. Um Jesus saved sinners and so that's who's supposed to be there. Um yeah. and um it should be a place where people are are allowed to take off the god face like all is well, we're happy, everything's working perfectly and just be honest with their brokenness and their need because uh Jesus heals the sick, so you have to come to him as the physician. And um, I think the, the church should be a place where people have the ability to just to say, hey, I love God, but I'm really struggling right now. And then we minister to that person and care for that person and help them walk through it as they as they're repenting of these things. We're war- we're helping them. It sh- there should be sort of an environment where there's an ease to say, hey, I've fallen flat. I'm struggling. I need help. Um, the problem isn't isn't the repentant person. Who says, I hate this. I want free from this. That's not the problem. That's the work of God in their life. The problem is the person who loves it, doesn't want to let it go and just pursues it uh, uh, and just dives into it. Yeah. Yeah. Or in my opinion, increasingly, the person who is using that as their tool to connect to God, which I think is is going to be a huge battle that Christians face in the coming decade is people who are like, hey, you know what? Somebody using plant medicine to commune with the, the spirits in Peru. I'm going to use it to talk to God. And I actually know a lot of Christians That's, who are now, you know, experimenting with substances for the purposes of prayer and meditation. I, I don't think it's such a good idea. So, oh, um, it's, it's explicitly it's, condemned. That yeah. I'll say this la- one last yeah. thing. I'll say to that, I've um, 
I was joking with some friends a couple of weeks ago is we actually did a show on this. Uh, Cultish did a show on this recent, recently, the DMT and ayahuasca and communicating and sorcery and all that stuff. And one of the things I said was like, well, you know what? Uh, I would never, ever, ever even want to try that. Though it sounds interesting to say, hey, you can get a shot at the other side and, you know, all that. That might sound appealing. Uh, I, I would never want to do it because uh, we're involved in a lot of ministry. And I think there's a lot of spiritual attacks on us. I wouldn't want to get to that other side and just <laughs> yeah. give them the opportunity, give them the opportunity to get their hands on me. Nor do you want to send a message to billions of people that the best way to commune with God and to really become deeply engaged with prayer, you know, and, and step up to the next level spiritually is to go and have some sort of a psilocybin experience or ayahuasca retreat that, frankly, most of the world's population is never going to be able to afford or do or have access to anyways. And I think it just kind of sends people the message that, hey, if you really want to be holy, you got to try this because this is the next level, bro, you know. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the the way scripture puts it is the way to peace and to have a relationship with God, a deeply intimate relationship with God is through what Christ has accomplished in his perfect life, his death and his resurrection. It is a gift of eternal life. It is peace with God. It is it is a free gift. The way to peace with God and communion with God is through faith in Christ. And then as you are in Christ, you grow more and more with yeah, in your relationship with God, knowing him, walking with him, communing with him. And um, and so the way to peace is Christ, not ayahuasca. I would encourage you to go to bengreenfieldlife.com slash Jeff Durbin, Jeff, J-E-F-F, Durbin, D-U-R-B-I-N. And Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Thank you, brother. Thanks for having me. Well, this is pretty cool. Just put the finishing touches on a luxury VIP retreat in the Swiss mountains. So you may have seen a little bit of rumblings about this on social media, but the beautiful Six Senses Retreat, all-inclusive luxury locale in beautiful Crans, Montana, Switzerland, has graciously allowed me to bring a maximum of up to 10 folks, and this could be individuals, couples, families, into a transformative experience there where I'm going to lead breathwork, hikes, workouts. You'll get hands-on foraging adventures with nature's freshest ingredients in their cooking class locale there. You're going to get a chance to do amazing spa treatments, a meticulously curated program. You'll get to meet my wife and my sons who will be there. Again, families are welcome. You can bring one or two or three kids. You can make it a couple's retreat. If you want to go solo, you can. There's a limited number of rooms where we're prioritizing couples and families. But again, if you want to get in, this thing is coming up around the corner, April 17th through the 21st, 2024. So it will be all-inclusive. You'll want to fly into Geneva, Switzerland, assuming you want to get into the closest airport. I've already got our flights. Uh, you'll want to mic your calendar for April 17th through the 21st. And here's how to get in. You go to bengreenfieldlife.com slash senses 24 that's bengreenfieldlife.com slash six senses 24. And again, it's going to be incredible all the way down to like evening sing-alongs and stargazing and yoga and meditation. And again, the spa there is incredible. Six senses is known for having incredible retreats around the world, but this one in Switzerland is supposed to be one of the best. I can't wait. I led a retreat in Portugal last year and people just said it was the most amazing experience of their lives. This one 
will be just as good, if not better. So go to bengreenfieldlife.com slash six senses 24, and you can get in on this retreat that's coming up right around the corner, April 17th through the 21st. I hope to see you there. More than ever these days, people like you and me need a fresh, entertaining, well-informed, and often outside-the-box approach to discovering the health and happiness and hope that we all crave. So I hope I've been able to do that for you on this episode today. And if you liked it, or if you love what I'm up to, then please leave me a review on your preferred podcast listening channel, wherever that might be. And just find the Ben Greenfield Life episode. Say something nice. Thanks so much. It means a lot. In compliance with the FTC guidelines, please assume the following about links and posts on this site. Most of the links going to products are often affiliate links, of which I receive a small commission from sales of certain items. But the price is the same for you, and sometimes I even get to share a unique and somewhat significant discount with you. In some cases, I might also be an investor in a company I mention. I'm the founder, for example, of Keon LLC, the makers of Keon branded supplements and products, which I talk about quite a bit. Regardless of the relationship, if I post or talk about an affiliate link to a product, it is indeed something I personally use, support, and with full authenticity and transparency, recommend in good conscience. I personally vet each and every product that I talk about. My first priority is providing valuable information and resources to you that help you positively optimize your mind, body, and spirit. And I'll only ever link to products or resources, affiliate or otherwise, that fit within this purpose. So there's your fancy legal disclaimer.